Hello, everyone. I am Chris Hyams, CEO of Indeed, and welcome to the next episode of Here to Help. At Indeed, our mission is to help people get jobs. This is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what keeps us going all day. And what powers that mission is our people. Here to Help is a look at how experience, strength, and hope inspires people to want to help others. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, a month in which we recognize the innumerable contributions, vibrant cultures, and rich heritage of Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders, also known as AA and NHPI. The month of May was chosen to commemorate the first Japanese immigration to, to the United States on May 7th, 1843 and also marks the anniversary of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad on May 10th, 1869, as the majority of the workers who laid those tracks were Chinese immigrants. This community has played an essential role in writing the American story from serving our country in uniform, advocating for civil rights, starting new businesses, and winning Olympic medals. The contributions of the AA and NHPI community touch the lives of Americans every day. My guest today is Victoria Liu, Senior Product Strategist here at Indeed and Regional Co-Chair of the Asian Network Inclusion Resource Group. Victoria, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Fantastic. Well, let's kick this off the way that we always start. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing good. Uh, first of all, Chris, I wanted to thank you for that amazing introduction of our almost 200 your history here in America for our Heritage Month and just being such an amazing ally to Asian Network uh, the last few years. I know we're kind of both wearing our, uh, or you're wearing your Asian Network shirt. I'm wearing a uh, fundraiser shirt um, for AAPI that we had last year. And yeah, I think I still remember when Here to Help started over two years ago and every week I would diligently tune in or watch the recording. And I would think, you know, how amazing it would be if someday I were given the opportunity to be a guest speaker. And yeah, here I am right now. Um, but in all honesty, I've just been so inspired by those who have kind of shared their stories, knowledge and vulnerability through these conversations uh, before me. And I hope to just be a stepping stone and kind of pave the way um, for someone else to do the same. Well, thank you for that. And thanks again for joining me. Uh, so we're, we're talking today, as I said in the intro, at the beginning of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, or AAPIHM. Tell me a little bit about why this month is important to you. Yeah, so like you stated in the definition earlier, uh, this is a month-long celebration of our collective experiences, cultures, tradition, history. And growing up, I never saw people who looked like me kind of celebrated in this way. So it's a really exciting time um, kind of experiencing this as an adult and being able to actually shape what that looks like through Asian Network. And um, our theme this year is Passport Through Asia. 
Uh, so we really want to showcase how Asians are not a monolith by highlighting underrepresented minorities within the Asian community. So this could be non-male identifying folks, disabled individuals, or any other uh, unique barriers or intersectionality certain groups of Asians may face. Uh, we have some super exciting programming planned for the next few weeks here uh, to show the depth and breadth of who we are as Asians. Uh, so we have a meditation uh, healing hour for Asian women. Uh, we're going to have a Bali X dance class. Uh, we have a philanthropic food drive. We're going to have a model minority dis discussion. Um, and this year we're having each Asian network zone uh, champion a less well-known Asian country. Um, and we also plan to say, serve some tasty uh, Asian food at the Indeed offices for lunch every week. Um, and we'll be having our first in-person happy hour since the pandemic started. Um, so that'll be uh, May 19th. So we're super excited about that. And I just want to acknowledge, in addition to AAPIHM, uh, May is also Small Business Month and Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, so we're excited to have you uh, back later this month uh, to host a fireside chat um, around internet gaming and mental health. Um, and this will be in collaboration with our Asian Network, Access, and Parents and Caregivers Inclusion Resource Groups. Fantastic. Well, it's, it's definitely going to be uh, exciting to be able to have folks back in person. We still have a lot of folks who, who are remote, but the last, uh, we've talked quite a bit about this last two plus years, our IRG membership has grown considerably and really has been this amazing connective tissue holding folks together while we've all been remote. But it's really exciting uh, timing-wise to be able to to get back for, for those who are coming back to offices to be able to celebrate. Especially food is such an important part uh, of, of almost any one of the celebrations that we have. And so to be able to, to do that not as a Zoom cooking class like we have the last couple of years is, is really nice. So um, I'd, I'd love to go back a little bit and, and talk about kind of how you got here. You grew up in the Midwest uh, of the U.S., but spent time traveling back and forth to uh, visit your family in China. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, I think it was a absolutely life-changing experience uh, in a positive way. Uh, my dad actually came here uh, to the US in the early 90s to do his PhD in mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan. I was born at the U of M hospital. And uh, funny enough, I ended up going uh, back to Ann Arbor for my undergrad uh, business degree. So I grew up in a city called Troy, Michigan. It's in the suburbs of Metro Detroit. Uh, there's a high concentration of Asian Americans there. So I felt like growing up uh, kind of both cultures, like growing in growing up in this kind of Asian American heavy um, suburb, as well as my experiences in China, um, they kind of felt homogenous in isolation. But because I had both experiences, um, they were just very different from each other. So I kind of just grew up with this mentality of like, oh, I get to kind of take the best of both worlds. Um, so I've been back to China a total of five times. So when I was six, eight, 12, 19, and 22, 
Uh, I probably would have gone again maybe in my mid-20s, uh, but sadly, I have not been able to do that um, and see my friends and family there due to the pandemic and how strict the quarantining rules are. Um, but yeah, I think from my the five times that I did go back, it was always a bit of a culture shock. When I arrived, I would have to brush up on my rusty Mandarin in order to communicate with my family there uh, who don't know any English, uh, get used to using squatting toilets, um, and then my stomach would have to kind of build up immunity and toughen up so that I could enjoy the kind of authentic street food um, that you would find at the night markets. Um, but. I think what surprised me was just my own resilience and grit. Like every time I was able to adapt and adjust um, every time and to give more kind of backstory on my dad's side of the family, he's actually from the rural countryside of China and everyone on his side of the family is a sweet potato farmer. Um, so I kind of loved that uh, growing up because every time I would go back, I could you know, play with pigs, chickens, rabbits, other farm animals. Um, and his family actually lives in a cave with no running water or electricity. They would wash their clothes on washboards in a stream nearby. Uh, my uncles would take my siblings and I on these tractor rides through the fields for fun. Um, and I think even just as a child at a young age, I embraced this kind of really simplistic lifestyle where I was just surrounded by the beauty of mountains and nature. But I think back and it's not always positive memories. Um, so I actually did a 23andMe DNA test um, and I found out I'm 98.5% Chinese. So basically purebred um, Chinese ethnically. Um, except every time I went back to China, I would always stick out as a foreigner based on how I dressed or my mannerisms or my American accent. Um, and I just remember feeling exclusion at a young age for not being accepted by the country where my family of origin is from. Um, so I think much of my life, especially, um, as a teenager and even a young adult, it was this constant kind of night and day um, struggle of, on one hand, wanting to be more Caucasian, uh, such as dyeing my hair blonde, wearing colored contacts, avoiding the sun uh, to fit into America, but at the same time, uh, leaning into my Asian heritage more uh, to kind of preserve the culture, traditions, the language, uh, of all the kind of generations before me. So that's a uh, not atypical um, story for an immigrant family kind of straddling these two cultures. How did that mix of experiences shape your identity as you were growing up? I think I just got really good at being adaptable through almost leading like a double life, uh, but trying to preserve the best of both cultures. So I would get to wake up every morning and be American at school. Uh, so listen to pop music that my friends were listening to, uh, have the choice of what classes I wanted to take, what sports or extracurriculars I wanted to get involved in. 
um, kind of chasing the latest fashion trends at the time. Uh, but then I would come home from school and kind of be this good textbook Chinese daughter. So playing the piano, doing my Chinese school homework, uh, working a part-time job as a receptionist, uh, helping my younger siblings uh, with their homework, helping my mom with English or how to use technology, uh, studying, doing chores. Um, and I think just looking back on all those uh, experiences now, uh, there's times where I like look back and there's certain things that are very hilarious uh, to me, but at the time are just really confusing or upsetting kind of being this first generation immigrant. Um, so I wanted to share kind of two elementary school uh, lunchroom stories here. So the first one is uh, my mom would pack like garlic chive dumplings, stinky tofu, uh, black fungus mushrooms in my noodles, like kind of just these um, uh, Chinese, like classic Chinese uh, foods, but they would have this kind of visual olfactory kind of effect um, on my predominantly white classmates. Um, and I remember one time just getting so frustrated, I like ate my lunch in the bathroom with the stall locked. Um, and then that day I went home and told my mom, like, don't ever bring Chinese food for me for lunch anymore. I just told her I wanted peanut butter jelly sandwiches or Uncrustables or Lunchables, um, just like what everyone else had. And uh, she obliged, but looking back, I'm like, you know, all for over a decade, I could have been eating my mom's amazing um, homemade Chinese food, and instead I'm eating this, like, disgusting version of a charcuterie board for a kid, or, like, the pizza Lunchables were... I, I wouldn't call that pizza, but, um, yeah, so I think, you know, that was one story about the food, um, but also just my mom's inability to read English and kind of comprehend or conversate in English. Um, she has this habit of buying things that are on sale. And at the grocery store, she actually bought strawberry daiquiri and fuzzy navel, this like peach cocktail drink. Um, and she thought there it was strawberry and peach juice. So she sends my sister and I to school uh, with these beverages and we can't open them because we don't have a beer bottle opener. So we are asking the uh, new aid for help to open our, what we thought was juice. And then we get sent to the principal's office and uh, my mom gets called in. She doesn't understand why we're getting sent home. Um, and then when we go home, she opens them for us. And I had a taste of it in like second grade. And I remember getting mad at her because that was the first time I ever had alcohol and it was just so bitter. And, uh, I told her like, mom, this juice is expired. That's why it's on sale. So stop buying things that are on sale. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think just, you know, these two stories really illustrate what my childhood was like uh, growing up. And yeah, they're funny now, but I think at the time being like eight years old, you're just like, what is going on? Um, but 
yeah, I don't, I don't have any regrets on what my upbringing looked like. And I don't think I would go back to change anything either. Um, cause even if I could, all these experiences shaped who I am today. Yeah. Time definitely gives uh, a little perspective to things that, that could be horrifying as, as a kid, but, um, but yeah, it is, it is part of who you are. Well, so I, I'd love to, to jump ahead. Um, in May of 2021 at Indeed, you wrote a, a very powerful blog post about the increase in violence, xenophobia, and racism against the Asian community. And this is something that we've, we've talked about quite a bit on, on Here to Help before and, and at Indeed. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write that post? Sure. So somebody from my Asian network leadership team, uh, who's on the employer brand team, he actually reached out to me to see if I would write the piece. Um, he actually wrote a uh, another piece on Inside Indeed the year before in May of 2020. And since the particular acts or incident that I discuss in the article uh, happened to me in the New York City subway, I always think about their motto, which is see something, say something. And I think as a as a person who was kind of the prime target victim of the violence and hate crimes uh, as an Asian woman, I felt like it was my duty and obligation for me to share my experience of what happened to me um, since I did have this opportunity and platform that presented itself. It makes me really sad to think um, or to know that the recent attacks have gotten even more frequent and violent since I moved out of Manhattan almost two years ago. Um, and even though now I live in Seattle, unfortunately, I'm still seeing and experiencing similar situations. Um, and it's partially why I will be moving out of my current neighborhood in the next few weeks, uh, because I just don't feel safe walking around here alone, um, especially late at night when I have to walk my dog on a daily basis. And it's really horrifying for me to hear racial slurs like how I should be going back to my home country when I was born and raised here with the same rights as every single other American citizen. Um, so that's an example of something that's kind of more direct. Um, another one that I get is, where are you from? Michigan. Okay, but where are you really from? And I know they want me to say China, but I think there's a way to kind of phrase the question where you could ask, oh, what's your ethnic background? Um, and I think just kind of little microaggressions like that are just so, there. there's so much just like passive aggressive kind of gaslighting going on uh, when someone makes a remark uh, by it like that. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes they're not aware of how asking a seemingly innocent question like where are you from could be really triggering and um, upsetting to like a first generation immigrant who was born and raised here just like the person asking the question potentially so i i've been thinking long and hard about this and i don't necessarily have a good answer to this uh other than saying you know it's really 
upsetting and exhausting that the that these types of incidents keep happening in uh, coastal cities where there is a large Asian presence uh, that has kind of shaped the culture and history of the area. If you like this interview and want to hear more, hit subscribe. Catch up on any Here to Help episodes you might have missed, like my conversation with Yeji Myung, and get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Victoria Liu after this break. So if we back up a little bit, you joined Indeed in May of 2019. Since then, you have, you've taken on new roles, you've grown your career, you've, as you mentioned, transferred offices, um, and have moved uh, recently into a new role. Can you talk about doing all of that and um, against this backdrop of, of the un- uncertainty and tension of, of the pandemic and, and all of the uh, social and societal uh, issues swirling around it? How, how did you navigate all of that? It sounds contradictory, but I think the uncertainty of what was happening actually gave me more clarity for what I wanted out of my life. Uh, so I was in Manhattan March 2020 when COVID first hit, and that was arguably one of the scariest experiences I've ever faced. Um, and because of just all the uncertainty and lack of control I felt with the whole situation, I decided to pivot and kind of refocus on the factors in my life that I could influence, such as what my day-to-day role was or what city I lived in. And I think generally speaking, my kind of personality type, I actually thrive a little bit on chaos and high pressure situations. So I was self-aware enough at the time to realize that hey, this might be like a really good time for me to push myself and grow um, professionally and personally uh, for kind of the, well, at the time I didn't know the pandemic was going to last so long. But yeah, looking back like the past two years, I'm really proud of myself for just how much I've accomplished professionally and personally. Um, I think another eye-opening moment was I, uh, my partner, and I, uh, he also works for Indeed. That's how we met. Um, we temporarily moved back to my parents' house in Michigan for over a year um, in between New York City and Seattle. Uh, and his family is from Toledo, Ohio. So we actually grew up an hour apart, uh, but he's nine years older. So we kind of never crossed paths until uh, Indeed in Manhattan. And I think for both of us, it was just so great to reconnect and spend more time with our families as adults. Um, and in a way, they almost helped us provide stability in our lives, too, um, as we were kind of navigating these life changes and milestones together. Um, both of us moved out uh, when we were 18 and went to college, and we never really had the opportunity to, um, you know, be with our families uh, as adults. So that was a really uh, good experience as well. And I think moving from Manhattan, where it's very much go, 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 there's this rat race kind of mentality. 
um, moving back to the Midwest and now to Seattle, having the slower pace of life, living in more kind of residential areas, it helped me at least finally hit pause on my life and stop um, and kind of reflect on what's important, which I don't think I was able to do well and prioritize in my early to mid-20s. So you are now on the chief of staff team for our GM and EVP of Enterprise, Maggie Hulse. Can you talk about your experience there and how you help guide the communications and storytelling for the group? Sure. So I, if you asked me like even one year ago, I think, I never exactly envisioned myself in a chief of staff role, but as I was going through the internal mobility process at Indeed, um, I did a ton of coffee chats with other chief of staffs, both at Indeed and outside of Indeed. I realized how good of a fit it could be for me, and I was really excited about the opportunity. Uh, so people ask me, like, what is your what, what's the typical day or week look like? And I don't have a good answer for them because I'm like every week, every day, every hour is different, um, which I personally love since I never get bored and I'm always learning something new uh, or working on something interesting. And I've just learned so much in the role from working with someone kind of as inspiring and intelligent as Maggie Hulse. Um, so I meet with her every week uh, on Mondays, and I just get so jazzed to do the work um, because she's just I, like, I've just learned so much from her and I'm truly inspired. Um, so yeah, I've had the privilege of learning kind of what her unique communication style is, um, understanding her abilities to be an effective storyteller. And specifically in my role, I help guide the communications and storytelling for the enterprise organization by always thinking about the context that we're setting up and how that can be perceived uh, by the audience. So in this role, um, I had to transition from being kind of a consumer of information to a creator of uh, content. So everything I do, I'm constantly kind of putting myself in the shoes of the audience and asking myself, hmm, how will this be received? Is this interesting or worth my time to read or watch this recording? Um, if this is a polarizing or divisive topic, like how can we kind of frame it in a more inclusive way? And it just really excites me to kind of be thinking about this stuff. Great. Well, let's come back to Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Uh, you are the regional co-chair of Indeed's Asian Network, America's Inclusion Resource Group. What role have the IRGs played in your own personal story? I truly believe it's like helped me define my identities in my mid to late 20s um, here. And when I started working at Indeed, uh, I immediately joined Asian Network and Women at Indeed because I would look in the mirror and I'm like, okay, I'm an Asian woman. I should get involved with these kind of inclusion groups. Um, and I was involved in both of them as a member uh, for a year in 2019. And then 
I held local chapter leadership roles for both uh, in, starting in January 2020. So I was the education lead for Asia Network and events lead for Women at Indeed. And after kind of having, trying out like both IRGs and leadership roles, I decided to kind of full uh, focus solely on Asian Network. Uh, so I became the regional events lead in February of 2021. Uh, and I stepped up for the co-chair role in August 2021. Um, and it's been a wild but fun uh, ride since. Uh, and during the summer of 2020, kind of at the peak of the pandemic, uh, I also got diagnosed with ADHD and anxiety. Um, at the time, I was seeking mental health uh, kind of professional or mental health professional help uh, due to the pandemic. And uh, when I received these kind of diagnoses, I started to tap into my invisible identities more um, and joined our access inclusion resource group so that I could find a community who was understanding what I was going through, um, as well as kind of see what coping mechanisms uh, were out there and what others' experiences with um, ADHD and anxiety were like. So thank you for sharing that. And I know that this is something that um, a lot of people learn about uh, earlier in childhood, but increasingly more and more people are, are coming to this realization and actual diagnosis um, as a young adult or and sometimes even later. Can you talk about um, what that was like for you to, at this stage of your life, get this uh, sort of answer to maybe what might have been a question before about what was going on with you and 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 how uh, how you've been responding to it. Mm -hmm. Sure. First of all, I want to thank my parents for being amazing human beings. Who, uh, yeah, I just I need to thank in a, in uh, in eternity for managing my ADHD and anxiety when I was a child and just, you know, lashing out, acting like just a little ball of energy and stress at the same time. And I honestly believe that I'm like, I, I'm, I'm just glad that I got diagnosed later in life uh, as an adult, because then it's up to me how I want to manage uh, my ADHD and anxiety and learn more. Uh, do I want to go to therapy? Do I want to try different medication? Do I want to read articles, listen to podcasts? Um, I just feel like I can manage it better and it's up to me how I want to do so. Um, versus I think a lot of times what ends up happening is getting diagnosed as a kid. Um, you get just kind of labeled sick or special, um, and then you're kind of forced to take these meds uh, and you don't have much of a say. Uh, it's more up to what your parents and society says you should do. Um, and I think that would have fueled into my insecurities even more back then. Um, and I'm not sure if I would have ended up where I am today had I gotten diagnosed as a kid and kind of been on a you know different curriculum or given special accommodations. Um, that being said, I think kids who uh, should, kids should take advantage of them if they need them. Um, and I've learned a lot about, um, you know, realizing that I'm privileged uh, to kind of be high functioning 
to the point where people don't necessarily notice right away that I have ADHD or anxiety, but definitely some days it just feels so debilitating and it's kind of this battle that I constantly fight with myself 24 seven, um, when I'm awake or when I'm asleep, like it's all, um, internal and thinking back to when I got diagnosed, it was very, very difficult for me to accept this. Um, I reflected on all the times in my life that I screwed up because of my ADHD or anxiety. And I just like felt so much shame and guilt. Um, so I kind of had my like grieving phase. Um, but after that, I decided like, how can I be more self-aware? Um, so of both the positives and areas of improvement um, for someone with ADHD or anxiety so that I could ultimately be like a better partner, a better friend, a better employee, better family member and contributor to society. One of the goals of our inclusion resource groups and, and why inclusion and belonging is a core value at Indeed is to help make a safe space for people to feel like they can be themselves and get the support they need. What what do you think employers in general can do to better understand how to support employees with the variety of, of needs that they have? Yeah, I have a few thoughts here, uh, but first and foremost, uh, kudos to Indeed, because it is truly the first place that I've worked for where people are just unapologetic versions of themselves. And it's so refreshing when you don't have to mask who you are or be someone you're not just to fit into the company culture. It sounds super obvious, but I think empl employers truly need to remove all judgment or potential for retaliation when someone is confiding in you about something that's happening in their personal lives that could be impacting uh, their work. And I've personally been there before, and I can say that that person in that moment, they're being super brave, courageous, and vulnerable. Um, sometimes they just need someone to listen and empathize versus kind of immediately jumping to brainstorming solutions right off the bat. Um, and I think sometimes we can lose sight that at the end of the day, we're all just humans uh, trying our best to make things work. Um, so to give some examples, like instead of assuming why someone may be underperforming, take the time to really understand what's going on and how you can lend a helping hand. Instead of judging why someone is speaking, thinking, or acting a certain way, be open-minded in accepting that individual for their own kind of unique and creative form of self-expression. I think as an employer, you can offer the options available uh, for resources, but at the end of the day, the individual um, themselves, they need to be empowered to get the support they need and they'll know what's best uh, for them if they're kind of open to receiving help at the time. And lastly, I'll just say, encourage employees to take time off and actually mean it. Um, I've dealt with kind of unexpected hospitalizations of both my mom and my partner 
during my time here at Indeed. And both of those times, I didn't take time off because I was working with a new manager and, uh, you know, recently took time off before that. And I just felt so guilty. I didn't speak up about what was happening in my personal life. And I just kind of sucked it up and worked through it. And looking back, I regret not taking the time off that I needed because I believe that my mental health in the long run uh, kind of suffered from not doing so. You know, clearly one of the things that comes from from time and perspective is is being able to see things uh, a little differently through the the lens of uh, of experience. And and you've talked a lot about sort of where you are today and and where you were growing up. If if you had the opportunity, you know, is there anything that you wish you could have said to your younger self uh, from all the things that you've learned since? Yeah, so, so much, but I think everything kind of follows like a overarching theme. Uh, so for some context, I used to like very unhealthily compare myself to my peers professionally and personally uh, on social media. So I would ask myself, how comes so-and-so is getting promoted and I'm not? How come my teammate is, you know, getting a higher bonus than I am? How come my friend is getting married or buying a house and I'm not? Um, so just after over a decade of kind of being addicted to social media and stuck in this loop of unhealthy comparisons, um, I decided to delete all my social media accounts, um, except for LinkedIn, uh, almost two years ago. And I can honestly say I've been a happier person since, uh, just focusing on my own life and not really uh, caring about what others around me are doing. And I would just tell myself like life is my, I would tell my younger self that life is not linear. Um, and to me, at least it would be a bit boring if it went kind of exactly how you calculated it um, and expected it to go. And I've realized through my life, too, that sometimes the deviations from kind of the path you intend just like open up this whole new world um, of possibilities. And it allows you to journey beyond what you thought was even kind of possible. Um, so, yeah, I, I would tell my younger self, like, don't try to just like control and orchestrate every aspect of your life. Um, have faith in spontaneity, serendipity, and take the time to smell the roses. Uh, it just creates space for good things to happen and for you to actually be able to appreciate them. One of the things that's interesting in in your career progression, so you're uh, in an individual contributor role, but you have uh, moved into, into the strategy and, and now this chief of staff side of the business. What have you learned about leadership or what kind of perspective have have you gained from uh, from the roles that you've been playing? I just realized how much behind the scenes work goes into everything, uh, how much collaboration is actually happening that people may not even be aware of. Uh, so even in my previous role at Indeed on the sales effectiveness team, uh, I was working on various strategic and operational initiatives uh, for the U.S. Enterprise Client Success Organization. 
So my team put a lot of work in doing book design, running pilots, conducting analyses, like all these kind of behind the scenes things that were happening that I think day to day CS reps weren't even aware of. Um, and I think in my current role, I'm again, super lucky to be working so closely with Maggie Hulse and her leadership team. Um, so in my experience, like all the leaders that indeed are just such passionate, genuine, kind of caring individuals, and they have, you know, the best intentions. And I think as a individual contributor, I feel confident that uh, many, if not all, decisions that kind of are happening are kind of deliberated in depth and every solution is given consideration. Um, so I think for myself and my role, whether it's a presentation and external interview or a newsletter, it's made me more empathetic and appreciative of all the hard work that's necessary in order to kind of make it happen successfully. Well, as we uh, as we wrap up, um, I'll ask the question that I always ask at the very end of these conversations, which is looking back over the experience from the pandemic and the the world's reaction to it and, and your experience. Is there anything in all of that that has left you with some optimism for the future? I think what I realized the last two plus years is no matter how good technology gets or how convenient it can make our lives, just the feeling of an in-person connection with another human being is irreplaceable. Recently, I've been hearing a lot of stories about my friends or colleagues seeing their friends or family uh, for the first time since the pandemic started. And I really get emotional just thinking about how kind of joyous uh, those reunions must be um, to, you know, feel someone's presence, hear their voice loud and clear, kind of tactically shake their hand, give them a hug. Um, and I believe that people appreciate and value their time together in person a lot more now compared to kind of taking it for granted before the pandemic. Um, I would see like before the pandemic, I would see um, or experience firsthand friends or families like hanging out together in person at a restaurant or park, but then everyone would just kind of be heads down looking at their cell phones or electronic devices and just really being distracted and not in the moment uh, with kind of their real lives and the people who were there in person. And I think now that we've had nothing but our electronic devices for the past couple of years, uh, I see people interacting in person now with just more physical presence and engagement. Um, so I really hope that this trend is here to stay and people can continue having this intentional separation of space between their digital and in-person lives. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. It was really uh, amazing and powerful to hear your experience and, and everything that you bring to your role here. And thank you for everything that you do for Indeed and to help people get jobs all over the world. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Here to Help. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and download the podcast to stay up to date with the latest episodes. Until next time.